Joe Biden's next big priority is passing an infrastructure plan his administration says will create a huge number of jobs. What's in the proposal? Will it pass? And what does it mean for the working class? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis, and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to have again Professor Richard Wolf. He joins us on a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the Socialist Program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf.com, and that's spelled R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Richard Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. We missed you for one week, but you're back, and our audience really loves this segment. We get lots of feedback about it, and it gives us a chance to talk about the things in the news related to the economy, related to the economy as it affects society and specifically as it affects working and poor people. But we also try to put it into a larger political perspective and try to put today's news into context, both of a historical and political type. I want to start, as I said in the introduction, with an examination of Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure plan. It's funny, like a couple of weeks ago, it was $3 trillion. But ah, what's a trillion here, a trillion there? Again, two trillion, the equivalent, I might say, of two years, two years of the military budget, because the Department of Defense is about $760 billion, But when you look at Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Energy, when you put the whole spending package together for military, for death and destruction, it comes to about a trillion a year. And yet, even this plan, which Many, well, the liberals, the more liberal people in Congress say is inadequate. The squad, AOC, say it should be 10 trillion. But even so, this plan is under attack, and it's not simply from the Republicans. I had a chance to review some of the Sunday morning talk shows over the weekend. They're all pillaring the plan and heaping it with skepticism and cynicism. Anyway, let's get started. Let's get your take. Okay, there are many ways to get into this. Let me pick one of them. Last week, Biden commenting on this proposal of his, the three that has become $2 trillion worth of infrastructure, stressed, and these are pretty much his words, that this is a basic change. This is not 
And then his phrase, tinkering around the edges of a problem. So let me begin by explaining why I believe it is precisely tinkering around the edges and that what President Biden is engaging in, as so many presidents have, is the attempt to use a label, a claim, words to articulate what he would like folks to believe when the reality is very different. This is a program that takes a lot of money, and $2 trillion is a lot of money, and throws it at a problem. Let's start with what the problem is. Our infrastructure, which American engineers and everybody else who looks at it knows and has known for years, is declining. Our roads and bridges are not maintained as they should be. Our harbors, likewise. And there is no mystery about why this is. We entrust the maintenance and the upkeep of our infrastructure mostly to governmental agencies. And in order for them to undertake rebuilding a road system, a water system, a system of pipes underneath our city streets, whatever it is, these are very expensive projects. They have to be undertaken or you will pay the kind of price we're paying now in the long run. But politicians hate to have to maintain the infrastructure because it means they have to go get money to do so. The mass of people are in a tax revolt because too much of the taxes in this country have been lopped off onto working people. And the rich and the powerful and the corporations, uh, by making the donations to the politicians, have an easy time telling them, don't you dare tax me. And borrowing is something local governments who are in charge of infrastructure have a hard time doing and have difficulties and limits on what they can do. Bottom line, in the peculiar way our society, our capitalist society works, the private sector doesn't do maintenance of the infrastructure and resists paying the taxes that would allow the government to do it. And the end result is it isn't done. The politicians know that infrastructure deteriorates very slowly. And if they can just get through their three years as the mayor or their four years as the governor or their six years as the senator, they'll be on to bigger, higher, and better things before the disastrous cost of neglecting the infrastructure is pinned on them. Their unlucky successors will be stuck. So it's a product of our system that our infrastructure is neglected in the first place. Other countries manage it much, much better, just like other countries with fewer resources did a better job of managing the COVID pandemic than the United States, a much better job. All right, that said, here's what the $2 trillion are going to be. They're going to be cash gifts to corporations. It's very important that everybody understands that. Part of the infrastructure rebuilding, the paving of a road, the rebuilding of a bridge, whatever it is, will be a contract. Let's be real clear. 
a contract between the government and the kind of large corporation that can undertake road building, bridge repair, you name it. If it isn't given to a corporation directly, the money is given to a government, a government of a city, of a county, of a state. And guess what they do with the money? They turn around and take the money they got from the $2 trillion program, and they hand out very lucrative contracts to, you guessed it, large corporations to undertake the work. So let's be very clear that $2 trillion will go overwhelmingly, first and foremost, into the pockets of large corporations. What will they do with them? Well, we know the answer. We know because we know what corporations have been doing with every and all sorts of money flowing into their coffers over the last century. They will be paying super high pay packages to their CEO and their top executives. They will be shelling out dividends to their shareholders. They will be automating their production lines, buying expensive equipment with that money to replace many of the workers they will then no longer have to pay wages and salaries to. In other words, we're giving the money, the $2 trillion, much of which is going to be money we all have to pay for sooner or later, to the very same people whose behavior has brought us to this economic crisis. This is unspeakable. We are rewarding the people who brought us the crisis. They're not going to change anything. They haven't for a century. That's why we have the level of inequality we have today. That's why we have an economic system that crashes on us on average every four to seven years. And giving money to these corporations, which is what President Biden is proposing, will simply continue this game. What we have here is a capitalism that got itself into deep trouble by failing to prepare and manage a virus, then got itself at the same time into ever deeper trouble not maintaining its infrastructure, and now coming up with a way to quote unquote address these failures by restoring, reinforcing, replenishing the wealth of the people at the top. Will some roads get built? Absolutely. Will some bridges be rebuilt? Yes, there will be some infrastructure update, but it will be done in the context of what can only be called trickle-down economics. The mass of the working people will get some improved roads and bridges, and whatever else trickles down from the $2 trillion that are going to be handed over to corporate America. And that is as true of the American Relief Act dealing with COVID as it is with this infrastructure proposal. And the truth of trickle-down economics is that mostly very little ever trickles down. Richard, I think the American people, because there's no alternative really provided in the mass media for the existing system, we're told it's the best, it's exceptional. People are encouraged to chant USA, USA, USA 
all the time. I noticed that was the favorite go-to chant for the Proud Boys when they were beating people up here in Washington, D.C. You know, they beat somebody up and start chanting USA, USA, USA. Anyway, this whole sort of fog that people are in where people feel this is the best country. It's clearly the richest country in the world. The mass suffering of people isn't really talked about that much in the media. There's some article, but it's not like, you know, headline news. It's not like this is a crisis that 160 million people in America live near or are in poverty. Matter of fact, those numbers are not widely known. It's the poor people's campaign and other social movements that are bringing that out. So people think this is the way it has to be because this is the best that it is. You can't get better than the best. So this is the way it just is. And the fact of the matter is, this isn't the way it has to be. We don't have to have a system where every allocation by the government, be it for infrastructure or anything else, has to go through the funnel of corporate entities who are mainly trying to make profits for, well, for the the board of directors and their biggest investors. It doesn't have to be this way. There could be multiple other ways, but certainly this isn't a divinely mandated system. The reason I'm saying all this is I think people in America have very, very low expectations because they assume this is the way things must be. Absolutely. I mean, I used to make that point in my classroom experiences. I would say to students, let me describe to you very briefly and in only in a very couple of example kind of way, Uh, what the social system is in a country like France over in Europe. Everybody's heard of France, knows of France, visited France. Let me give you some examples of what they take for granted, which you and your wildest dreams could not imagine. It is the law, and what I'm saying to you is the case right now. It is the law in France that the minute you graduate from high school or whatever level of college you can go to, the minute you become a working person, you enter the labor force and take a regular job. It is the legal obligation of the employer to give you five weeks of paid vacation every year, whether you're 25 or you're 65, or any other age, that is the law. It doesn't depend on a union negotiating a contract. It doesn't depend on how good or how nice or how hard you work. It is part of the labor management relationship that has been developed in that country, and it has been that way for many decades. Most American workers will not get five weeks of paid vacation ever in their working lives. You're taking for granted here in the United States something which a French working person would think of as barbaric. That is, the French worker believes for his or her family, for his or her hobbies, for his or her relaxation and rehabilitation, they need time off from the job and they must be paid for that time off. End of conversation. Let me give you another example. In Germany, to take another country, It is now the law and has been for some years that all fees, all tuition 
for all higher education is set at zero. There are no fees. There is no tuition. The only thing a student has to cover is his or her room and board, your living expenses. You have to pay for your own clothing. But the cost of the education is a public service, just like going to a public park is a public service. And not only do the Germans make it available to all German citizens, but the Germans make this education available to anyone in any country on this planet who would like to come to Germany and take advantage of a first-rate higher education system. I could go on. You're absolutely right, Brian. You have to rely on the American people's not knowing what's going on in the rest of the world in order to keep up the illusion that this is the best country you can possibly be in. Because in many, many ways, it hasn't been, and it hasn't been for a long time. Here's another way to get at this. Let me mention some things that President Biden could have done, but chose not to do. We have now, depending on how you count, in the neighborhood of 20 million people who are either unemployed or have recently left the labor force. This is a disaster for them, for their families, for their neighborhoods, for their communities, for the stores they can no longer afford to shop in, and so on. One of the things you could have done is to say, I am going to employ, I as president, I, as the leader of the government of the United States, I am going to offer all 20 million people a job starting Monday, and I'm going to give them a proper, decent, well above poverty level of income for their work. 20 million people could do spectacular work rebuilding our parks, rebuilding our roads. Sure, we can hire some corporations to help advise how to use these workers in a useful way, how to take advantage of their being available to save on expensive equipment. We can get the roads and the bridges rebuilt using these people, giving them the job they need, the income they need. We could also do offer a program of testing for COVID way bigger and better than what we have now. The same is true for every other illness. We could have these people providing daycare, which would liberate parents of young and middle-aging children the kind of support they need so they can get a job and be part of the labor force and earn properly for their incomes. We can do the same for the elderly so that we give them a proper and decent and respectful retirement rather than putting them into neglectful nursing homes where the rate of death from COVID was off the chart. We could do spectacular things that would directly and immediately help people, not 
bailout corporations, which is what Mr. Biden has chosen to do. And when it comes to the question of how to pay for it, and before I even mention that, let me remind you that Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s, who also was a friend of capitalism, who also was afraid to shake the system, still and all went way further than Mr. Biden dares to do because Franklin Roosevelt did establish a federal jobs program. He did hire 15 million Americans at a time when our country was much smaller and he did give them a decent income and did pay them so that they could afford their mortgages, pay their rents, and all the rest. So it's not as though what I'm suggesting is something Mr. Biden and the Democratic Party don't know about. They did that in the 1930s. They've just conveniently forgotten it. And what about a progressive tax on corporations? If you look at what corporations have gotten. Over the last 20 years, they've cut their tax burden in half from 2% roughly to 1% of GDP is all that corporations pay. They haven't paid their fair share of taxes in many decades. Let's forget that. Let's give them that as a gift, but get the tax rate back up to where it belongs. Mr. Trump lowered the tax rate on corporations from 35% to 21% in December of 2017. All that Mr. Biden dares to propose is to go back to 28%, halfway back to what Trump did. And he won't even get that before this bill gets through Congress. So what is he doing? He's not confronting the problem. He is, in fact, tinkering around the edges. There's no real wealth tax in his proposal. His own party, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, have proposed taxes on wealth. In America, the only wealth tax we have is a tax on wealth in the form of land. We all pay that in the communities where we live for the land that hosts the house we own. We pay it often on our automobiles and things like that. The one kind of property you don't pay a wealth tax to, to any level of government in this country, is stocks and bonds. Well, how cute is that? That's the form of wealth favored by the really rich those who not only have a house, but have so much wealth that they can hold it in the form of stocks and bonds. Let me remind you, the top 10%, the richest 10% of America, own 85% of the stocks and bonds. The absence of any wealth tax on that form of wealth owned primarily by the richest, while you tax the wealth that is the home or the automobile of the average person, is the kind of injustice that Mr. Biden liked to talk about as a candidate. And here's his chance to fund the infrastructure bill this way, and he chooses not to do it. I could go on with examples, but I think you can see here, this is a man who is committed to reproducing the capitalist system. That's why the very problems developed by that system are now being proposed by Biden to be treated in such a way that has the number one priority of maintaining, reinforcing, and refunding the same system.
Richard, you mentioned Bernie Sanders and the idea of a wealth tax. Just this week, on April 2nd, Bernie Sanders tweeted, quote, if you paid $120 for a pair of Nike Air Force One shoes, you paid more to Nike than it paid in federal income taxes over the past three years, while it made $4.1 billion in profits and Nike's founder, Phil Knight, became over $23 billion richer. Yes, we must, quote, hashtag tax the rich. So it's interesting, too, Nike's Air Force One shoes, I mean, the naming of it to have young people identify with the glory of Air Force One, President Trump's plane and now President Biden's plane, again, paid for by tax dollars. But Nike, if you paid $120 for a pair of Nike Air Force One shoes, you paid more than Nike paid in federal income taxes over the past three years. I mean, it's one little tiny tweet, 200 and whatever, 80 characters, but it says so much. Well, you know, here's another example. We have very solid estimates of the amount of money lost to taxes for the federal government by companies who are doing something fundamentally unethical and illegal. That is, they are using accounting mechanisms that everybody who knows about this business understands to make their profits show up, not here in the United States on their accounting, where they would have to pay at least some profits tax. But instead, here's what they do. I'll pick an example. They open an office in the Cayman Islands in the Caribbean. Cayman Islands is a small independent country, very small. They open an office. They pay a monthly rent of a few hundred dollars for the office and the mailbox. Then they arrange invoices so that all the business they do in America is rooted, at least the invoices are, through the office in the Cayman Islands. And they arrange for the invoices of inputs and outputs so that the profit on the books shows up as a profit in the Cayman Islands. Let me be clear. All their workers are here in the U.S., All their production is here in the U.S. All their customers are here in the U.S. But the profit shows up as a paper profit in the accounts in the Cayman Islands. Why? Because the Cayman Islands has a zero rate of tax on profits. So by having the profits show up in the Cayman Islands, there's no tax. And of course, that's a loss of the taxes that would normally have been paid here in the United States. This kind of tax evasion in these countries that are called tax havens, Luxembourg is another example, Switzerland used to be and in some ways still is and so on. There are lots of places, some of them even inside the United States, certain states, the Dakotas and so on give you advantages. This kind of uh, evasion is costing the United States huge amounts of money. What would be necessary to stop it? The United States sanctions Russia and China, which is a theatrical move that has little impact on these societies. And obviously, the Cuban government, which has been sanctioned by the United States uninterruptedly for half a century, is still there and is doing quite well, thank you, notwithstanding the sanctions. 
But you know who couldn't last 10 minutes with any real sanction? The Cayman Islands, Luxembourg, or any of the others. If the United States made anything like a concerted effort to stop what they're doing, it would stop. But our government, winking and looking the other way, doesn't. And then has the nerve to tell us we should applaud when what it comes up with is the kind of system reinforcing program that both the anti-COVID bill and the infrastructure repair bill really are. The Apple Corporation is, once again, Ireland's largest company. Ireland, not New York, not California, Ireland. As a matter of fact, in Ireland, I'm just looking at a story from the Irish Examiner. Staying in the tech sector, Google Tech took second place with its Irish operations, growing by over 20%. For the second year in a row, the Irish Times top 1,000 companies has Apple as Ireland's largest company. There's only one Irish company in the top 10 of Ireland's top companies. I mean, again, why wouldn't, I mean, I'm asking something that might seem obvious, but I just want you to speak to it. Why wouldn't Congress, even for demagogic purposes, say, look, Apple is basically stealing money out of the pockets of American taxpayers? Yes, you wonder about it. You wonder how far things must have been allowed to get that they don't even go through the rhetorical or theatrical exercise of saying something. By the way, everyone understands, and let me make it clear, the reason that Apple and Google and the other big corporations go to Ireland is that Ireland deliberately set the rate of profit on corporate taxes much, much lower than what it is in the United States. You can even see now the kind of hesitant, sadly limited comments of the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, asking, can't we please, over the last week, can't we please have a minimum international rate of taxation so that there wouldn't be what she rightly calls a race to the bottom in which every country is terrified that any other country will lower the rate of profit so that their companies will leave and go to that country. So they'll retaliate by dropping it, which will lead others to retaliate by dropping until we're all bankrupt. You know, that's what is going on. It's been going on, by the way, for decades. But so complete is the control of the political system by the richest corporations in the world that most of the politicians, with some laudable exceptions, like Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or others, yeah, they'll say something, they'll point the finger. But we all know Emmanuel Saiz and Gabriel Zuckman, two economists working at the UC Berkeley uh, together with their parallel economists in Paris, France, they keep track of all of this. They've issued many, many reports that are used around the world as the go-to standard for analyzing the distribution of wealth and income. They have done the work. We know where the wealth is. We know how much is there. We know how much is not being paid in taxes. And yet year after year, the political system is sufficiently controlled by those who evade the tax that they can continue to do so. And then we are all told, we the people, that there either isn't money to maintain the programs we depend on, 
public school, public health, whatever it may be, or even worse, we are told, yes, luckily, we will have the programs because the government will borrow the money it hasn't the courage to tax from corporations and the rich. And let me conclude with this. It's a little lesson in economics. When the government runs a deficit, that is, it spends more money than it raises in taxes, let's all be clear what's going on. The government is too afraid to tax corporations and the rich because it depends on their donations to candidates, their donations to political parties, and the armies of lobbyists they fund to do the work of government. So they won't touch them. What they'll do instead is say, okay, if the mass of people demand that we still have schools and hospitals and all the rest, we'll borrow the money. And here comes the lesson. Where do you think the government gets most of the money it borrows? Answer, corporations and the rich who have the money to lend to the government because the government didn't tax them. So from the point of view of the corporation and the rich person, this is a no-brainer. The government could have come, taken my money and taxed me and paid for a good COVID program or a good infrastructure, but they didn't. Instead, they offered me this alternative. Instead of paying taxes, end of story, goodbye my money, I get to lend them the money. They'll pay me back in five or 10 years and pay me interest every year in between. This is an unjust ripoff of the mass of people. And the more folks understand it, the shorter its future will be. Richard, one last question. I mentioned this on our show yesterday, the In the News segment of the Socialist Program, but it was exactly two years ago to this week that a major bridge, a concrete overpass spanning an interstate highway in Chattanooga collapsed. It collapsed when a truck carrying an oversized load hit the bottom of the bridge. And the American Road and Transportation Builders Association it has issued a report. Here we are two years later. More than 47,000 bridges in the United States are in poor condition and in the need of urgent repair. 47,000 bridges. So you would think, okay, that's pretty important to infrastructure. But I want to bring you some good news as we close out. The number of structurally deficient bridges is actually down by about 7,000 since 2017. But it turns out when you look at it, Richard, it's maybe not such good news. It's not that those 7,000 bridges were fixed. The numbers fell because the Federal Highway Administration during the Trump administration weakened the standards of what it means for a bridge to be deficient. I mean, that again, in a way, says it all. Yes, it does. If you cannot solve a problem, then pretend it. And I believe President Biden is falling into that trap, unwilling or unable to solve the problems of inequality and the structure of decision making. Let's be real clear. Most of the key decisions in this society are made by the employer class, a tiny minority of our society. And if we 
turn all this government money over to them. We have only ourselves to blame and have no basis to be surprised that they use it in a way to reproduce this system that they sit at the top of. They're not going to behave otherwise. And if you make every program go through them, they will sit and smile and take the money and use it in the same way they have used all the money flowing into their hands for the last century. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com, and rdwolf is spelled R-D-W-O-L-F-F. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. Our next segment will focus on Afghanistan. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. <laughs> <laughs>